Morning, Boker Tov. Welcome, everybody, to the Aliyah Day on this prep day, the, uh, the sixth day of the week. As we prepare to go into the seventh day, the Shabbat, in which we have the distinct honor to be Hashem's witnesses on the earth, that He is God, that He is the Creator, that there is uh, nothing uh, aside from Him, ain't old. So, uh, Baruch Hashem, welcome. Glad that you're here. If you are new to the channel, then I welcome you. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Hope you're having a beautiful and fantastic day, and that your day continues to be beautiful and fantastic, and that your prep day is uh, extremely and abundantly joyful. If you are new, uh, please subscribe to our wonderful channel here. We have uh, all kind of great content that that comes out real, as you see, on a daily basis with the Aliyah Day, and then there's other content that is forthcoming. So we ask you to subscribe, click the little bell icon so that you stay up to date on all that content, and as always, please uh, like our videos and share them and make a little comment and share them with all of your friends all around the Fruited Plain. They will love you and bless you for that. So um, let's get to our reading because there's quite a lot to read. This parasha has uh, 70-something, 74, 75, something like that, mitzvot in it. I believe that's accurate. It is, uh, it's a lot. And we've, we've uh, done our very best to glean from what Hashem would have us to glean from, but there is, uh, there are so much more that could be said and taught. And so anyway, let's read. We're going to be in the book of Devarim. And we're going to find ourselves in the Art Scroll Chumash. If you have the Art Scroll Chumash, we're going to be on page 1059. And uh, Deuteronomy, or Devarim, chapter 24. And we'll begin reading in verse 5. We're going to read the 6th and, and the 7th Aliot today. And comment as best we can uh, as we go through them. So let's look. It says, one shall not take a lower, or I'm sorry, verse 5, uh, that was verse 6. Uh, just kidding. Here we are. When a man marries a new wife, he shall not go out to the army, nor shall it obligate him for any matter. <clears throat> he shall be free for his home for one year, and he shall gladden his wife whom he has married. One shall not take a lower or upper millstone as a pledge, for he would be taking a life as a pledge. If a man is found kidnapping a person of his brethren among the children of Israel, and he enslaves him and sells him, that kidnapper shall die, and shall and you shall remove the evil from your midst. Just a quick note on that, because some people, um, you know, they object to Torah observance, and they say such things as, "Well, the Torah teaches slavery. Do you believe that?" And of course. Uh, the slavery that the, the, the Torah uh, teaches or, or allows, I should say, really, that's really the better way to say it, <clears throat> is not the let's go out and steal a bunch of people and turn them into our slaves slavery. It's really, it's really if, you, if you study slavery, again, you have to use the oral law um, to understand it fully. It's really a slavery with the intention, intention of redemption, redeeming the other person. A person is sold into slavery because they've committed a crime, usually, uh, such as theft. Or perhaps they, they, they sell themselves into slavery, 
because they're so uh, so in debt that they need to sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debt and kind of restart their life. But you're only allowed to have that person in a state of servitude, slavery, for six years. But you're not allowed to go out and steal them, kidnap them, capture them. That would actually be a Torah against Torah law. So I just want to share that with you so that you it can equip you when you're having these conversations with your your friends and family. And, and by the way, don't get angry at them. Uh, don't get frustrated at them because they don't know. Uh, most people uh, have never read the Tanakh. They have a most people. I mean, it's just I'm not trying to be uh, insensitive here, but most people have a bumper sticker. Uh, theology. They have a bumper sticker religion, and and they just don't know. And and it's, and and of course, most people. This this would include believers and anybody else, even even you know new to new to Torah teachers kind of stuff. They don't know what it says in the Talmud and the Midrash and other Jewish writings. So they just don't know. So don't get angry at them. I just want to equip you so that you can help them understand these kinds of things because they come up very often. So verse eight. Beware of Zarat affliction to be very careful and to act according to everything that the Kohanim, the Levites, shall teach you as I've commanded them. You shall be careful to perform. Remember what Adonai your God did to Miriam on the way when you were leaving Egypt. Now, Zarat here is uh, what is uh, very often translated as leprosy, but it's not exactly leprosy. It's not really the same thing. And it's not a natural disease. The sages, the ancients understood this to be something that Hashem brought about people because they were slanderous, because they were speaking Lashon Harah, because they were talking ill about their brothers and sisters and making judgments with their mouth and so on. This is why it says, remember Miriam. Why does it say, remember, if this was a natural disease that you could catch because, you know, you were, uh, you know, Petting a mouse or something. I mean, I don't know. Whatever you're doing to catch leprosy. I don't know how leprosy spread. I'm not a doctor, although I played one on television once. Uh, it wouldn't have mentioned Miriam because what is Miriam? How can you catch something from Miriam? The, uh, the, the, the story goes back to Miriam speaking Lashon Hurrah against her brother, Moses, and then as a result, contracting spiritual leprosy. So verse 10. When you shall claim a debt of any amount from your fellow... You shall not enter his home to take security for it. You shall stand outside, and the man from whom you claim shall bring the security to you outside. If that man is poor, you shall not sleep with his security. You shall return the security to him, and he, or excuse me, when the sun sets, and he will sleep in his garment and bless you. And for you it will be an act of tzedakah before Adonai your God. Verse 14. You should not cheat a poor or destitute hired person among your brethren, or a proselyte who is your land, or one who is in your cities, or on that day shall you pay his hire. The sun shall not set upon him, for he is poor, and his life depends on it. Let him not call out against you to Adonai, for it, it shall be a sin to you. Now this is a wonderful uh, part of the Torah here, because this is giving us the Torah law for uh, workers' rights, okay? Um, the, in our country, you know, we had workers' rights that came about uh, some in the 19th century and then into the 20th century even more. 
But, you know, 3,000 years ago, the Torah was giving workers rights to workers. And so this is incredibly important because most people uh, tend to be concerned with justice and righteousness, and those are all valuable things, and we should just be understanding that the Torah deals with these things. In fact, Rabbi Monk brings down to verse 15, he says, On that day you shall pay his hire. Says Rambam teaches that its obligatory kindness to one's workmen goes so far <clears throat> that neither the worker nor his animal is to be prevented from eating of the food in the preparation of, of which they have engaged. So it is reported, it says here, that when the Ari, the, the Arizal, and had hired a workman, he did all he could to pay his wages before the afternoon Minka prayer. For how could he recite Shemano Yesrei? Uh, before he had performed this mitzvah, that was his his thinking that we should be we should not withhold payment for someone from someone. Now, this is another insight to this on a spiritual level, talking about the Sabbath and how the Shabbat is our payment. So, listen to this. It says the initial le- words, uh, excuse me, the initial letters of the of the phrase, right? Bayomo titain sekaro. <clears throat> the first letters are Beit, Tav, and Sheen, okay, of that phrase. It says the initial letters of this phrase spell Shabbat, all right? Bayomon, Titain, Sakaro, we have, again, the Beit, Tav, Sheen, that, that's, that spells Shabbat. Shabbat is Sheen, Beit, Tav. So it says, this reminds us of the interactive relationship between Shabbat and the rest of the days of the week. If one keeps the Torah carefully during the working days, he will benefit from the Nasma Yetera, the additional soul which is associated with the observance of Shabbat, and the great benefit of Shabbat reflects back upon the days of the week as well, so that its blessings illuminates all the rest of the week. So our reward, you could say, uh, you know, our reward is the Shabbat. When we serve God all week long, we get rewarded with the Shabbat. This is why Yeshua said that at the end of days, Hashem is going to say to us, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. So when we light the Sabbath candles... And we, you know, the woman of the house, and unless you're a single male, you, you can do it. But the woman of the house lights these candles and welcomes the Shabbat. We hear a spiritual voice that says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Why? Because the Shabbat is a foretaste of the world to come. It's not just a day. That's why when people say, well, you can worship God any day of the week. First of all, that is true, and and Jews do. We worship God every day of the week. It's really not about worship. But the, the underlying premise of that statement is that every day is the same. Every day has the same uh, spiritual nature. Every day has the same meaning. And that, my friends, is absolutely fundamentally not true. So... Can you worship God every day? Absolutely. Should you worship God every day? Absolutely. Are all days the same? Absolutely not. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is not a foretaste of the Alam Haba. Only Shabbat 
is the foretaste of the Lom Haba. Why? Because, well, among one things, it's the only day of perfection. It's the only day that's the number seven. All the other days lack because you have the first day, the sixth day, the fifth day, the third day. They all lack. They're never, none of them are seven. So every day is lacking except for the Shabbat. So when you enter into the Shabbat, you're actually entering into the foretaste of the world to come. And you should know that this is uh, this is the one of the many many things that's so special about this this day. So it says, "Le uh, photo says uh, verse fourteen. Uh, no, I'm sorry, verse sixteen. Fathers shall not be put to death because of sons, and sons shall not be put be put to death because of fathers. A man should be put to death for his own sins. I've got to stop there too. I'm trying to." do as many drive-by uh, uh, <laughs> comments on this as I can. I've got to stop here because this is a very, 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 very common thing or statement that is used by anti-missionaries, okay? When an anti-missionary is trying to confront the idea of the Mashiach dying for our sins, you have to understand something first off. Okay. Again, this goes back to why why being educated and, and practicing authentic Judaism, meaning that we involve halakha, we involve the oral Torah, we involve rabbinic literature, is so important. Because the anti-missionaries typically thrive. And an anti-missionary is a Jewish person who is, um, like their mission in life is to teach against... Um, uh, belief in Jesus Christ. They're, they're actually against Christian ideas. Now, just for clarity's sake, Lapid Judaism is not Christian. We are not Christians. We're not a branch of the Christian church. But because we believe in Yeshua, a lot of times people, um, they don't understand the difference. But but I, that's besides the point right now. Uh, so an anti, that's what an anti-missionary does. And so they, they're confronting Christianity. They're confronting Christians who don't know what they don't know, and, and therefore it's easy pickings, if you don't even understand what I mean, right? So they come along and they say, look, do you believe that that uh, your Messiah, the person you believe in, JC, you believe that he died for your sins? And they say, absolutely. And then they point them back to Scripture, and it says here um, in verse 16, fathers should not be put to death because of sons, and sons should not be put to death because of fathers. A man should be put to death for his own sins. And they say, they say see, gotcha, no man dies for another man's sins, so I guess, and, and, and unfortunately, this has led a lot of people to go, oh my gosh, uh, you know, what's going on? Well, first and foremost, you have to understand that Judaism absolutely believes in, a, in, in original sin, the original sin of Adam. Judaism absolutely believes that, and it's true, they, they believe it, and it's true, that we all die, no matter how wonderful we are. If if we all kept the Torah perfectly, which is possible, doesn't happen, but it is possible. If that were true, we'd still die because of the sin of Adam. All the sages agree to this, number one, okay? Number two, Judaism absolutely teaches that Messiah ben Yosef is going to come and die for the sins of Israel. Absolutely teaches that. The first coming of the Messiah in Judaism is the coming of the suffering Messiah. Absolutely 100%. A lot of Jews don't even know that. Uh, I guarantee you that a lot of Jews that you meet or talk to don't even realize that they've probably never heard of Messiah ben Yosef. But that's for another time. 
but coming back to our verse here specifically, where this is used to throw people off, it does not mean what people think it means. Here's the comment from Rabbi Monk, and, and prayerfully this will make sense. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of sons. It says, It is in this not saying the same thing as the end of the verse, a man shall be put to death for his own sins. Rashi points out, quoting from Sifre, interprets our phrase as referring to the specific case of sons testifying against their fathers, whereby the Torah declares that the father shall not be put to death by the testimony of the children. All the legal authorities extend the prohibition against testifying to include all close relatives. So in the due process of Torah law, this verse was understood to mean that you cannot have someone put to death. Remember, it's a death penalty case. You cannot have somebody put to death based on the testimony of one of their relatives. That's what this means. Isn't that amazing? It has nothing to do with a man shall die for his own sins like people think. Or like they try to make people think. When we actually go back and learn what the comment, how the sages understood this in the commentary, we find that it's a prohibition of a father testifying against his son and vice versa. And the sages extended that to all relatives. So, unfortunately, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a big swing and a miss for anti-missionaries on that verse. Um, we absolutely do die for the sins of our forefathers. In this case, we die for the sins of Adam. That is an absolute fact uh, that is talked about many, many, many times throughout Jewish literature. So, again, this is about equipping this morning. We're just equipping you to have those conversations um, and again, don't get mad because if you're approached by somebody, if you're sitting down having lunch with someone and they happen to be of, of the Jewish uh, heritage or Jewish faith or whatever, and they say, well, Judaism doesn't believe in, in um, original sin, don't get mad at them. They, they don't know what they don't know. They just, they're, just, they're just parroting what they heard somebody say uh, either in shul or, or maybe online or something. Don't get mad at them. Just share with them what you know. I say, well, actually, Judaism teaches the exact opposite of that. So it says, uh, verse 17, You shall not pervert the judgment of a proselyte or an orphan. You shall not take the garment of a widow as a pledge. You shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and Adonai your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a bundle in the field, you shall not turn back to take it. It shall be for the proselyte, the orphan, the widow. So that Adonai your God will bless you in all your handiwork. When you beat your olive tree, do not remove all the splendor behind you. It will be for the proselyte, the orphan, the widow. When you harvest your vineyard and you shall not glean behind you, it shall be for the proselyte, the orphan, the widow. You shall remember that you, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So God is taking care of of the uh, the orphan, the proselyte, and the widow. Now, why why is the proselyte included with the, the orphan and the widow? And the reason for that is because the proselyte uh, has been adopted into the family but doesn't have any, uh, the technically, I should say, doesn't have any family support. This is why God loves the proselyte so much and why the sages talk about this. Because the proselyte 
leaves everything behind to come into a community and they don't even have so much as a father or a mother or grandfather or grand grandmother to support them. They're just all on their own. In other words, they choose to become a spiritual orphan, as it were. Now, the community is supposed to adopt them and help them, okay? But this is why they're grouped in with the orphan and the widow. Now, what's an interesting insight to this passage before we get into chapter 25? Is a beautiful insight, once again, quoting from Rabbi Monk, who's bringing down, uh, bringing down a quote from Rashi. He says, so that Adonai your God will bless you in all your handiwork. Talking here about don't go back for the, the gleanings that you might have dropped on the ground. Says Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, who states in the Talmud that the Torah bestows a blessing on one who does a mitzvah, even without knowing it. Accordingly, if a valuable coin falls from a person's clothing and a poor man finds it and supports himself with it, then Adonai bestows a blessing on the person who lost the coin. Now, I want you to understand how powerful that is. That we can perform a mitzvah without even realizing it. And when we do, heaven gives us credit for it. So suppose that you're in the mall or wherever you are. And you reach into your pocket to get something out of your pocket and inadvertently $5 or $20, let's say, let's say 20, let's say that a $20 bill that you had in your pocket, you reach in there, you pull out your keys, the $20 bill falls on the ground and you don't, you don't know it. You get down uh, many, many hundreds of yards later, you dig in your pocket, you realize, oh my gosh, the $20 bill is gone. It's upsetting. I totally understand that. I would be upset too if that happened. But here's where we can take solace and maybe not be quite so upset, uh, which sometimes is easier than done. I totally get it. But, but here's where we can not be quite so upset. Hashem, I did not intentionally give that $20 away to anybody. But since you control all things, you caused it to fall out of my pocket. And surely someone who needed a $20 blessing received it. And even though you did not intentionally give it away, you are accredited with that mitzvah. Isn't that beautiful? Now I ask you, because the, the, the sages, which are, who are the Pharisees, they get a bad name. They get a bad rap for being mean and cruel. None of that is true. Historically says the, histor, History and historians say the exact opposite. But I just want to ask you, what I just shared with you, does that sound like that the Pharisees are just mean and oppressive? I mean, they're, they're willing to say, you know what, even if you do something you don't even intend to do, but it's a good thing, God's going to give you a blessing for it. They go on to say, by the way, because we are, um, we have to deal with unintentional sin. That's, that's a problem as well, right? So we have the consequences of unintentional sin, absolutely. But which is greater? unintentional sin or unintentional mitzvah, which one, do, do they offset? Is it tit for tat, one for one? No, here's the answer. It says, we are taught that the measure of reward exceeds the measure of punishment in the ratio of 500 to one. <laughs> wow. So when you have an unintentional sin, okay, that's that's like a one, right? You have a one strike against you. We need to deal with that. I didn't know what I was doing, and let me let me try to rectify that. Um, this is why when somebody approaches you and they say, you know, you really hurt my feelings and you say, I didn't, I didn't intend to, I didn't even know what I was doing. Um, again, you know, we have to just kind of remember that our unintentional sin, 
uh, also needs to be rectified as well. So if somebody says, you know, you you upset me and, and you say, oh, I didn't mean to, well, you need to somehow rectify that, right? But our unintentional mitzvahs outweigh that by 500 to 1. This is why God says that, you know, he, he brings us in to the, the second and third generation, but to the, those that love him and obey his word, he blesses them to a thousand generations. In other words, to infinity. To infinity and beyond, right? Chapter 25. When there will be a grievance between people, and they approach the court, and they judge them, and they vindicate the righteous one and find the wicked one guilty, it will be that if the wicked one is liable to lashes, the judges shall cast him down and strike him before him according to his wickedness by account. Forty shall he strike him. He shall not add, lest he strike him an additional blow beyond these. And your brother will be degraded in your eyes. You shall not muzzle oxen at stretching. Now, 40 lashes. Why 40 lashes? Let's go back and look at this. Another wonderful insight here. 40 lashes. Maharal, Maharal, by the way, says, uh, explains that 39 days suffice for the physical growth of the fetus, and so do to be. And then on the 40th day, the soul enters the body. Okay? Why, we're talking here about why are there 40 lashes. All right? It says the lashes, which involve 39 strokes, are meant to purify the human body. Why was Yeshua hit with lashes the, you know, 39 times? Because he was bringing purity to the human body. He was undoing what Adam had done because he was the second Adam. Adam, by the way, was also a virgin birth, but I digress. It says the soul is then freed and thereby becomes exempt from the punishment of spiritual excision. It says earlier in this quote that, that uh, Rabbi Monk brings down that when someone is beaten with lashes, it is actually a substitute for the death penalty, so that spiritual excision is not required. So one of the so people ask, why was it that Yeshua was beaten with lashes and then, uh, you know, crucified? Um, that seems excessive. Well, part of it is because he was taken on upon upon himself all of our punishment. But the other reason is because by being beaten with lashes, there was a spiritual pur purity that brought that made his death optional. Not optional from the standpoint he didn't have to die, but what it means is that it, it took away the need for him to be spiritually excised. So it says, hence the number of 40 once again appears, indicating a renewal and a rebirth after a chastisement through punishment. So the lashes, the 40 lashes, the 39 lashes that were brought upon the Messiah, that was actually all a part of our being born again experience. Because when you're lashed, that be, brings about a spiritual rebirth. So it says, similarly, purification in a mikvah requires 40 measures, 40 seah of natural water. The spiritual development of Israel in the wilderness took 40 years, and Moses was raised to the perfect idea of the Torah, staying on Mount Sinai for 40 days. In fact, our mikvah, one of the, one of the mitzvot is to have a double seah, two forty. Two amounts of 40 seah. Particularly, we have two mitzvot, two boragabai mitzvot that are actually mirrors of each other. So, our cistern is going to have a double seah. That's 80 seahs of water for the two Mashiachs. 
So it says, along the same lines, Yalkut Yitzhak observes that one day Adonai will resurrect the dead, Tal Tia, or Ti, I'm sorry, Tehiyah. That is from the dew of heaven. Now the word Tal for dew has a numerical value of 39 corresponding to the number of lashes required for the purification of the soul. That's from Shabbat 88b. So these are all the reasons why there are 40 lashes. Very, very spiritual. 40 lashes end up being 39 lashes. And it corresponds to the very dew of heaven. So verse 5, 20, chapter 25 and verse 5. When brothers dwell together and one of them dies, he, shall, he has no child. The wife of the sea shall not marry outside to a strange man. Her brother-in-law shall come to her and take her as a wife as himself and perform the Levite marriage. It shall be that the firstborn, if she can bear, shall succeed, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, so that his name not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man will not wish to marry his sister-in-law, then his sister-in-law shall ascend to the gate to the elders, and she shall say, My brother-in-law refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He did not consent to perform Levite marriage with me. There's a wonderful movie on the Hallmark Channel called Loving Leah. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It's all about this. It's really kind of a cute movie. Um, verse 8, Then the elders of this city shall summon him and speak to him, and he shall stand and say, I do not wish to marry her. Verse 9, Then his sister-in-law shall approach him before the eyes of the elders. She shall remove his shoe from his foot and spit before him, and she shall speak up, saying, So it should be done to the man who will not build the house of his brother. Then his name shall be proclaimed in Israel, the house of the one whose shoe was removed. Verse 11, if men fight with one another, a man of his brother and a wife of the one of them approaches to rescue her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him, and she stretches out her hand and grasps his embarrassing place, you shall cut off her hand, and you shall not, your eye, uh, I'm sorry, your eye shall not show pity. Verse 13, you shall not have in your pouch a weight and a weight, a large one and a small one. You shall not have in your house a measure and a measure, a large one and a small one. A perfect and honest weight shall you have, a perfect and honest measure shall you have, so that your days shall be lengthened on, on the land that Adonai your God gives you for an abomination of Adonai your God are, are all who do this, all who act corruptly. So cheating somebody in business is also considered an abomination. All right, rounding out, turning the corner, about to end our Aliyah. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you were leaving Egypt? That he happened upon you on the way, and he struck those of you who were hindmost. All the weaklings at your rear, when you were faint and exhausted, and he did not fear God. It shall be that when Adonai your God gives you rest from your enemies all around in the land, that Adonai your God gives you his inheritance to possess it, you shall wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the sun, and you shall not forget. Who did Amalek attack? He attacked those who were weak, those who were exhausted, those who were wanting to quit and give up. What's the message to us there? Number one, stay in the herd. Stay with the community. Don't get off by yourself. Number two, never quit. Number three, don't get exhausted. Don't become weary in well-doing, but stick to the calling. Stick to the faith. Stick to the program. Stick to programs like this that can build you up and strengthen you and encourage you. End of our Aliyah today. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Thank you so much for spending the week with me and the Aliyah and learning and growing together. There is so much to God's Word. It is, it's exciting 
and it's powerful, and I pray that it blesses you. Please share this video with your friends. They need to have this amazing resource. They don't even know that it exists, and they won't know it exists unless you tell them about it and share it with them. So God bless you. Thank you. Have a great day, and let's see everybody tomorrow together. Let's fill the house both with our excitement and joy and also with each other so we can be in our presence together. Shabbat Shalom. See you uh, tomorrow. Bezrat Hashem.